Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kill. We really appreciate you listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. So, Tane, everybody knows who listens to this podcast, we like to mix things up a we're, little bit. We're like Sir Mix-a-Lot. That's right. <laughs> wow. There are, there are times when we are the ones who are mixed up also. <laughs> Okay, so that wasn't exactly the way we had sort of mapped that out, but okay. So putting all that aside for a moment, this episode is going to present a mixture of subtopics or areas of the law within the larger topic of Fourth Amendment law. Tell the folks what we're going to discuss today, Tane. Yeah, today we're learning about Fourth Amendment issues associated with search and seizure of technology with a little evidence law mixed in for good measure. Shout out to my awesome summer intern, Mr. J.B. Bryant, for his help in conducting some of the research on this episode. And also some contributions from my summer intern, Stephen Greenway. Is he awesome or just okay? He's he's incredibly awesome. He really is. So not a day goes by in the courtrooms across this country where somebody's not dealing with technology in a courtroom. Sometimes we're asked to read over Twitter exchanges between spouses when deciding a custody issue or asked to sign a search warrant or consider a motion to suppress concerning electronic data. As the technology has evolved, the law has struggled to keep pace. Always interesting to see how a document such as our Constitution, which was created prior to electricity, the internet, the computer, and the motor vehicle, applies to modern realities like Facebook, Twitter, and similar social media, and also electronics. So let's start this, this conversation, Tame, with, a, with things involving searches of cell phones or computers and, and related data. There's a landmark case out there called Riley versus California, 573 U.S. 373. That was decided in 2014 which ultimately sort of started this analysis of a cell phone as a container. In other words, the cell phone itself is like a really big duffel bag, Tane. Right. It's kind of like a a duffel bag with a filing cabinet full of stuff inside of it. Yeah, that's what we think of when we think of cell phones. But no, seriously, in the Fourth Amendment arena, that's how the courts began thinking about it. They began saying... You know, you might be able to seize the phone, but that doesn't necessarily mean you get to look inside. That's right, because as we found through horrible personal experience, there's some really horrible stuff on some people's cell phones. But nevertheless, um, there was a landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, which is Carpenter versus the United States, and that's at 138 Supreme Court 2206, and that's a 2018 case. In that case, the Supreme Court concluded that the government's acquisition from wireless carriers of the defendant's historical CSLI, which is cell site tracking essentially, data, was a search under the Fourth Amendment. And more specifically, the narrow holding was that accessing seven days of historical CSLI constitutes a Fourth Amendment search. The Supreme Court held 
that a warrant is necessary to obtain CSLI in the absence of an exception such as exigent, exigent circumstances. You know, it's one of those things, Tane, where we always talk about the expectation of privacy whenever we get into a Fourth Amendment analysis. And I'm thinking to myself, well, everybody at Verizon knows my CSLI data. But the point has been an expectation, and I guess it's been sort of refined to be an expectation of privacy from the government. That's right. So if you don't, th if, if if you're not sort of presuming that the government is looking at your, you know, cell data, then you have an expectation of privacy from it being turned over to the government. And so you like the way I say that? I do. And if you if you have that expectation of privacy, that means that the government gonna need a search warrant. That's right. And they should go and get one. <laughs> so many of these cases, as well as other cases from the Georgia appellate courts, have performed this analysis of cell phones. And seriously, they really did become an analysis of containers. And they started looking at how the uh, Constitution has been sort of treating duffel bags, purses, luggage, other containers that would be probably in, frequently in a drug context, how they have treated that. And that's really sort of formed the basis for where this law came from. Yeah. And I think if you, if you think about it, it really makes sense because the idea originally was that, all right, we've arrested you, we've confiscated your cell phone, and now we just have the ability to just page through all your photographs, your texts, your uh, anything else that might be located on your phone and just see what we might find. Yeah, because, because we legitimately have your phone, so we sort of use this plain view doctrine that says, well, I legitimately have your phone so I can look in it. And the, and the courts have refined that. They said, you know what? There's probably two Fourth Amendment issues there. There's the issue of getting the phone and whether or not that was legit, but then there's an issue of searching the phone, and that's a whole other thing. So, we're, And you know, Tame, you and I just cannot pass up a good evidence conversation. No, no, we do love a good evidence issue. So we're going to put that aside for a minute, and I just want you to consider this factual scenario, and we can add and subtract to this, Tane, and, and pick at it as we go through. So a defendant is arrested. And even while the screen is locked, the message that messages that he or she is receiving are displayed on the home screen of the cell phone. So then the law enforcement officer, he has legal possession of this phone. Can the officer read the messages? Could the officer, for example, take his own phone and take a photo of what is popping up on this defendant's home screen is that a search or is that legit? And this happens more often than not. Now, Tane. Yeah, like is he, he could take a screenshot of the message that says, at what time are we supposed to deliver to you the narcotics for which we will receive the money that you promised us? Because that comes through on text all the time, right? Yeah, but only back when like Shakespeare was alive. <laughs> And dealing drugs. Yeah. I mean, all right. <laughs> Which obviously happened. You know, usually they're saying, hey, you got any, you got any concrete? Yeah. You know, right, exactly. you got any wet or whatever. <laughs> um, so long story short, we're going to look at this analysis that says, okay, the, let's presume for a moment the seizing of the cell phone was done legitimately. Mm -hmm. Now what can you do with it? I think we've all sort of understood that under Carpenter and those other cases that, that you can't just go peruse. I guess it was Riley, really. 
you can't just go looking through the phone. So let's, let's do some of the edges of that. If there's messages are popping up on the home screen and for some reason, this person has not set his settings on his iPhone to say, don't show me the whole message. Just let me know. I got a message. Then can, what can law enforcement do with that? So yeah. Tank, Talk for a minute about that. Yeah. So assuming the cell phone was legitimately seized pursuant to arrest, the officer is allowed to look at the thing seized. So if the defendant has set his or her cell phone settings to show incoming messages in their entirety, even while the phone is locked, then the officer is allowed to look at those messages. And it's really no different than examining the exterior of a gun or a bag of drugs or looking at the exterior of the phone itself and whatever pops up on the screen, which is essentially open to all the public at large, you might see that screen. Um, so it, it's much akin to a plain view search, which does not require a search warrant. So one of the things that, that you're going to see, I think more often than not, are these fights over people. Do you have to, can you force a defendant to put his or her thumbprint or face recognition and can they be required to to present their face right and open the phone to now unlock the phone right and Tane, we we didn't write much about this in our outline but remember the Georgia Constitution is only slightly different as it relates to search and seizure because it, from the U.S. Constitution right because it it doesn't it doesn't allow you to require the defendant to do an act right. For example, and then people use these two examples all the time. Under the U.S. Constitution, you can force a defendant to give a writing sample. Mm -hmm. But under the Georgia Constitution, you can't. Under the U.S. Constitution, you can force somebody to give a shoe impression. Under the Georgia Constitution, you can't. And so some of this has been carried forward now into this technology world. So when you had to put your thumb on the thing, I don't know that you can make them do that but you can make them be present for surgery to get the bullet out of the body. Mm -hmm. So making them sit still while they aim the phone at your face so they can unlock it once they have a search warrant, mm -hmm. that might be legit. That I think, and you know, we're going to cross that bridge as we go forward, but I think that there are a lot of analogies to make. Just remember, if you get one of these cases, judges, the Georgia Constitution is different than the U.S. Not usually, but here it's a big difference. That's a really important point. So, Tane, let's let's shift now to ACMs. Oh, I love this subject, the black box of the automobile. So, you guys know what we're talking about here. I mean, in modern automobile technology, there is a computer module in uh, in every automobile uh, that most people refer to as the black box that simply automatically records data about the automobile um, while it's while it's being used while it's in use and this this document can reveal things such as what was your speed just before the airbags deployed what was your braking situation what was your orientation in other words were you going north and south east and west it doesn't necessarily have GPS information but it does tell you what you were doing some of them yeah, do yeah and just so you know the terminology, these are called ACMs because they're airbag control modules. That's the reason that this black box was integrated into the automobile in the first place was to tell the manufacturers or give data for the manufacturers about 
how and when airbags were being deployed. And so it was to show what the car was doing at the time that the airbag deployed. So, Tane, you did a lot of this research. Talk a little bit about Mobley. Sure. So in Mobley versus State, which is at 307 Georgia 59, it's a 2019 case. Hit the wrong button. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. But nevertheless, in the Mobley case, <laughs> the defendant was convicted of vehicular homicide after a denial of a motion to suppress the data retrieved from the airbag control module in his automobile. Uh, the officer retrieved the data from the airbag control module at the scene of the crash by entering the passenger compartment and attach attaching a crash data retrieval, they call it a CDR device, to the data port in the car. Because there's a little there's a little data port in there that you can attach to this little mini computer device on the uh, ACM. Uh, and so he went ahead and did that at the scene of the crash, the officer did. And then the next day, a warrant was applied to remove the ACM from the vehicle. So understand what happened. At the scene of the crash, the officer went ahead and retrieved all of the data from the ACM by essentially plugging it into a device that would pull all the data. And then the next day, a warrant was received to take the ACM out of the vehicle and retain that. Tane, if you've ever been to a have your more modern car looked at at a car repair facility, you'll see them sort of plug in a device to, to go through the diagnostics. Why is your red light on your dash? This is not completely different. It, it, it I mean, it's very different, but the, the concepts are the same. They, they literally, the officer had to enter the passenger compartment, and that was an important point, mm -hmm. but had to plug a computer into the thing and download data. It sort of does the rest of it by itself, even though the car was not operational, et cetera. Yeah. So think about it this way. The officer didn't just look inside the passenger compartment and see the VIN number that was on the automobile that was displayed or see the mileage that was displayed on the odometer. He actually had to attach something to the car inside the passenger compartment to give him the data. It wasn't readily available. So the court in Mobley, they, they at first, there's all kinds of things that really sort of make this an interesting concept if you're into these sorts of things like we are, but they didn't really answer the question as to whether or not the defendant has an expectation of privacy in the data collected by the ACM. Instead, they talked about the, the entering of the vehicle as and where they needed to connect that CDR device, mm -hmm. that that was a physical intrusion into an effect of the defendant, you know, you, 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 you're, you're, you have to be secure in your person, places and effects right. into the effect of the defendant and the retrieval of that data without a warrant at the scene of the crash was a search and seizure, regardless of a reasonable expectation of privacy. Therefore it would either have to meet one of the well-defined warrantless search exceptions to the warrant requirement or a warrant would have had to have been received prior to that search being conducted. That's right. And the court also talked a little bit about the fact that retrieval of that data might also implicate other Fourth Amendment issues because 
the systems in your car talk to each other. And so uh, there might be ACM data that included shared data from other devices such as a GPS or cell phone data information, for example. And that was important to the court in making its determination. So when you, the ACMs, are you seeing, y'all don't really sign many warrants in Cobb, do you? No, that's right. We get a lot. Mm -hmm. And they come to us frequently from the state patrol. Mm Mm-hmm. The skirt team that goes around the state, uh, unfortunately, they're usually involved in a fatality. Right. And they're trying to recreate accidents. And it's amazing what some of the things they can do. But one of the things that makes a lot of their jobs easier, instead of dragging uh, tires up and down roads and determining yaws and all that stuff, they get the ACM data. That usually tells them a lot of the answers to the question. But the car at this point is impounded or whatever, not operational, clearly. And so they'll come to us for the warrants and on the warrant application, they will talk more about what happened in the wreck and why, why uh, obtaining that information would be valuable. And I'll tell you more often than not, our officers, whether they get a consent, they'll try to get a consent, but if somebody's hurt or drunk or whatever, they'll just come get the search warrant so they can retrieve the data of both cars. Even if one of them's not the quote unquote suspect, right? They are gathering evidence in an attempt to prove a crime was committed. Therefore they'll even get a, the, the not at fault drivers, a search warrant for that person's ACM data. Sure. Because it makes accident reconstruction a whole lot easier. If you have all that data from both automobiles. So moving now from the cell phones and the ACMs, now let's talk about a case that I think when this came out, this caused a little bit of a stir in the legal community because I don't know that it was a departure, but it was very, very interesting. And this really deals with time lapses between the seizing of the thing and the searching of the thing. Right. So in Rosenbaum, State versus Rosenbaum, 305 Georgia, 442, 2019 case. And wait, hold on right there, Wade. Don't write these things down, people, because they w- these case sites and statutes will be available to you on our website at goodjudgepod.com. Go ahead, Wade. Nice. Nice soundbite. All right. The defendants were arrested for the death of a foster child in Rosenbaum and alleged physical abuse of another child. At the time of the arrest, the police seized their iPhones, iPad, MacBook laptops, etc., all without a warrant. Police obtained seven search warrants for all these electronic devices. But, but the, how, how much time elapsed between the time they seized them and the time they got the warrants, Wade? The first one of those warrants was not issued until 539 days after they were received. Where I live, that's more than a year. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, depending on... Time zones and stuff. Well, if it's a leap year. International dateline. And then the last of those warrants was issued 702 days after the initial seizure. Is that more than a year or two? That's dang near two years, Wade. Might be over two years. I guess it's not. Anyway, I'm not good with math. That's why I went to law school. Seven, Don't look at me like that. 730 Easy. Days 702 days. So the trial court granted the motion to suppress this evidence and found that the electronic devices that delay between the seizure and the search was unreasonable, and it violated the defendant's Fourth Amendment rights. And it also rejected the state's argument that the evidence obtained pursuant to these warrants was admissible under what is commonly referred to as a good faith exception, U.S. v. Leon. 
And I'm telling you, we we've had a whole co- we've had a whole conversation about that on a prior episode, Tane. Yes, sir. About we don't really recognize the good faith exception here in Georgia, um, but there's some cases that seem to. But anyway, yeah, the Supreme Court in that case used the Eleventh um, Circuit's analytical framework to work through the question of unreasonable delay in obtaining a search warrant, and it said even a seizure based on probable cause is unconstitutional if the police act with unreasonable delay in securing a warrant. Now, that's an important proclamation. Uh, The court also said the reasonableness of the delay is determined in light of all of the facts and circumstances and on a case-by-case basis. The reasonableness determination will reflect a careful balancing of governmental and private interests. So basically, the 11th Circuit framework for balancing all these different public and private interests requires the court to look at the totality of the circumstances and sort of four factors. One, the significance of the interference with a person's possessory interest, the duration of the delay, whether or not the person consented to the seizure, and the government's legitimate interest in holding the property as evidence. Yeah, the trial court concluded that there was a significant inference I'm sorry, interference with the defendant's possessory interest in their property. Yeah, if you take my computer for almost two years, that's going to be significant. Um, Even in the course of the 539-day delay it took for the state to begin to examine the device, this delay did not result from the complexities of the case nor any overriding circumstances, but from oversights that caused the state not to pursue their investigation into the contents of the devices with sufficient diligence. So there was an acknowledgement that the state's interest in holding the defendant and the defendant's property was high. The court found that there was an unreasonable delay that was not excusable, I guess, between the seizure of the property and the issuance of the search warrants, and that delay violated these defendants' Fourth Amendment rights. Hello, hello. This is producer Steven here. These guys are running a little bit long, so this episode is going to be broken up. So be sure to check out part two of our episode on the Fourth Amendment, where they discuss authentication and hearsay. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? (laughs) 
Yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. In the event of a fire, do not use the elevator. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.